Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Now, a few weeks ago, we discussed Russia and the sanctions the West had imposed after its invasion of Ukraine. Not just the sanctions on individuals and trade, but the freezing of foreign exchange reserves of Russia's central bank. And we wondered, would this cause a rupture in the world's financial system? A system that's ultimately built and maintained on trust. Now, a break with Russia is one thing, but it's mainly a big source of hydrocarbons and minerals. China, on the other hand, is the workshop of the world. So we thought we'd come back and look at what all this means for China's place in the global economic order, or indeed as a place to invest your money. And we're really pleased to have with us today George Magnus, an independent economic commentator, former chief economist of UBS, and author of Red Flags, Why Xi Jinping's China is in Jeopardy. So George, welcome. Thank you very much. And it's very nice to have somebody who's been a long time in economics. <laughs> so I wanted to start, George, by asking about China's relationship with Russia. Now, in February, just before the war, they announced a no-limits partnership. What do you make of this? Is it built to last? And how does it all look six weeks into Russia's war in the Ukraine? I don't think it looks the way they thought it might look when they actually issued this 5,500-word statement Um at what was, I think, their 38th meeting between uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in Beijing. Had things worked out differently, and, you know, the government in uh, Moscow had succeeded in overrunning Ukraine and decapitating its government and so on, I think we'd be in a very different place, both economically and geopolitically. But, yeah, it didn't really kind of work out the way, presumably, they were planned. I think that we don't really know what Xi Jinping was told and how much he knew or indeed what the Chinese intelligence services knew, certainly much less than the Americans by the sound of it. But I think it's pushed Xi Jinping into a rather awkward position. He's obviously committed to support Putin and anything that would reek of humiliation for Putin or defeat, outright defeat, would not reflect well on Xi Jinping inside China, particularly ahead of the all-important 20th Party Congress, which is taking place later this year. For the time being, I think we should assume that China's support for Russia will remain pretty solid. But I think they are uncomfortable with Putin. I mean, he looks like a bit of a nuisance, really, rather than a sort of a global leader. I just wanted to touch on what is the nature of that support? It's basically negative support in terms of not voting against Russia at the UN, not doing anything to criticise Russia publicly, but not, I think, actually giving them direct military assistance. Well, we don't think so. I think the support is based on a bond in which both countries' governments have seen a moment to exploit what they regard, rightly or wrongly, as the terminal decline of the United States and, quote, the West. So that bond, you know, is is pretty solid. But I think it's also built on fairly rocky foundations, to be honest. So we'll see how this works out, whether it's built to last or not, as events and time move on. Surely one of the things that's a result of the last five weeks is that the relationship is clearly now 
almost entirely one-sided because Russia is essentially in the position of supplicant to China because it's not actually offering very much to China other than an outlet for the oil that it can't sell anywhere else. Surely that's going to make a big difference to the relationship. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the Chinese are necessarily unhappy about that. As you point out, you know, Russia is a pariah, and I imagine it will remain that way for as long as Putin is in power, and has effectively become a vassal state of the People's Republic of China, to put it crudely. So that gives China huge amount of leverage over Russia. And that will certainly be something that the Chinese will be, in principle, not uncomfortable about. I mean, they like the idea of being top dog. That's kind of what, where they want to emerge in the world anyway, but certainly in the wake of this Ukrainian crisis. Doesn't it give them an economic advantage in getting access to cheap oil? Because presumably they will extract a concession from the Russians for taking all this crude they can't deliver anywhere else. Of course. I mean, the, the interesting thing at the moment, at least, is that many of the big Chinese state enterprises, like Sinopec, the big energy giant, and others, though, are being quite careful now not to do anything with Russia that could expose them to the risk of secondary sanctions. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily apply to smaller Chinese companies that seem to be scrabbling around to buy up assets, which the Western companies are leaving behind in Russia. But in terms of commercial transactions, certainly, well, we don't really know what's going on you know, behind the scenes in terms of military. But I think the Chinese rhetoric, which is solidly behind Russia, is not quite aligned with the actions commercial actions that we're certainly aware of. Could I move to something slightly tangential? There's been various suggestions that this marks the beginning of the end of the dollar hegemony because of what they've done. Two questions, really. Do you think that freezing the reserves of a sovereign nation, as the US has done, is theft? And do you believe that this is the end of US dollar hegemony, beginning of the end. Small question then. <laughs> if the United States was going around the world freezing the, the reserves of central banks willy-nilly, you know, yes, <laughs> it would be hard to escape the conclusion that obviously whoever was running the White House had a particularly you know, pernicious kleptocratic agenda. But I think this is different. I mean, this is a kind of a punishment for an invasion of an independent sovereign state, which is against rules, United Nations and so on and so forth. So I don't think it's theft. I do think it is going to encourage China. I mean, they didn't need any further encouragement because after the financial crisis in 2008, they've already been very strongly of the view that the world suffers from having a dollar-centric financial system. But that has largely remained rhetoric. There's nothing really very much that they've done about it or have been able to do about it. I think the risk of seeing the West come together to impose quite coherent and what I think will be over time quite effective sanctions, I think is something that will have them running a bit scared. I don't think it'll be successful, by the way, but I think it'll have every incentive for them to try to de-dollarize the financial system and to set up an alternative arrangement whereby China plus Russia plus a number of other countries may deal in a yuan-based system and other people will deal within a dollar-based system. Whether that's feasible or not, I think is a different question. I don't think it is feasible mm. because there are systemic flaws in that argument. Yeah, well, I would agree with that because in the end, do you trust the Chinese more than you trust the Americans? And I think I would rather have a dollar than a yuan 
even with all the risks entailed of uh, my dollar reserves disappearing? Trust is a really important element as to how reserve currencies come about and how they stay that way. It's also systemically true to say you can only really promote much greater use of the yuan, either if the Chinese run current account deficits in perpetuity, or they free capital transactions for Chinese citizens that they can invest freely abroad. Because those are the only two ways in which foreigners can build claims on the Chinese. Neil talks about trust, and I think we all agree it's an important component. While a lot of countries of the West is united, has stood behind the US and uh, clearly rallied around the sanctions on Russia, there are various countries that haven't in the world. Countries like India have somewhat hedged their bets and looking to continue to trade with Russia. China obviously has the situation with Taiwan. They saw a moment in February where they thought the West had decayed to such a state that things which were not seen to be possible in the past could possibly become. Presumably that includes Taiwan. I'm interested in the extent to which what's happened in Ukraine has maybe changed the calculus, if at all, on Taiwan. Yeah, I have kind of mixed kind of feelings about this, because if you think back to the Cold War 1.0, when it was the United States and the Soviet (laughs) Union, we kind of think the world was divided into two blocks in that era, which of course it was. But there were a lot of countries that straddled those blocks as well. So in a way, I'm not sure that what we've got at the moment is hugely different. The world is dividing again into two blocks. It is certainly true that uh, India and uh, South Africa, Brazil, others, you know, are doing a a bit of fence sitting, conflicted over their economic and their security interests. But this is probably a long game. I mean, there are many events that I think will take place in the next kind of year or two, which will pull some of these countries onto one side or the other, I think. The Taiwan situation, I think, if anything, Russia's experience in Ukraine probably makes a military intervention by China in Taiwan less likely for the foreseeable future. I wouldn't say forever, but I think the Chinese will have certainly perked up watching the response of the United States and NATO and the West to come together. I think that they will certainly have noticed that the best laid plans can sometimes go horribly astray. And also that the cliche of spirited local resistance isn't just a cliche. Taiwan is altogether a different sort of military adventure from Ukraine. So apart from 2022 being the year of the 20th Party Congress, which really puts everything on ice, actually, they'll bully Taiwan and they'll continue to threaten. But I think that any kind of sort of military or aggressive intent towards Taiwan, I think, is less likely rather than more likely for the time being. Hmm. If we are to have an oil embargo, which seems to be the way the Western nations are heading, do you think that will be enough to change the game? And how long would it have to last? Well, to force Russia to either to the negotiating table or into retreat because their supply of dollars is severely reduced. Well, I think if if there were sort of an instantaneous cessation of oil and gas purchases tomorrow, I think that the implications for the Russian economy would be that much more serious. I mean, my hunch is that there has to be something more conclusive in Ukraine to bring this conflict to a stop. I think sanctions will cumulatively work. The incremental squeeze on Russia's financial position, I think, can be 
become effective. But I think it takes time. I'm keen to promote an alternative to the sanctions, which is an import tax on Russian crude, which obviously some of the nations of the world would not apply. But if all the nations of the West were to apply a, say, $20 a barrel import tax just on Russian crude, with the proceeds going to the IMF to start the reparations fund for Ukraine, that might upset the Russian apple cart. And if it did, of course, it could easily be doubled to 40 bucks a barrel. It would also mean that the Germans could still buy it if they chose to, but they would have to pay a substantial premium if they wanted to. What do you think of that as an idea? I would be enthusiastic about that. I mean, I especially if gas were included as well, because I think that's, uh, certainly for the Europeans, that's where greater sensitivity lies, I think. It's a transparent, you know, kind of market way of dealing with something. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think it would be pretty effective. Uh, yes, and your point is a good one to bring in gas, because that is the pinch point for... Well, that's uh, one they have to buy, isn't it? Because they're, they're stuck on a pipe. Yes. Yeah. And I don't see why the Germans should be stopped from buying it. It's just that there should be a significant cost to them while they are trying to find alternative sources of energy. I don't think there's much chance it's going to happen, but I think you're, it's a good idea. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, the only thing I would say about that is, isn't the idea to cut off the supply of money rather than to apply a tax to German consumers? Which yeah, but I think it would. The point is it would cut off the supply at $20. It would make a very serious difference at $40. And the Russians would have to decide whether to pump more of it to try and keep the dollars coming or to shut it off and get more for what they're selling. Okay, so let's let's move away from the Collins, the <laughs> Collins peace plan. Sorry, I couldn't <laughs> resist it. Yeah. Splendid though it is. If you're listening, uh, world statesman, now's an opportunity to put that one into practice. But I wanted to get back, come descend from 50,000 feet down to the, uh, to, down to, to, to sea level again. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> Your support is always welcome. Can we, can, we, can we talk for a second about, you talked earlier about some of the reactions in China to this sort of financial warfare stuff and feeling that this meant they would want to move away from the dollar standard. Can we talk a little bit about the things that they are doing on a kind of micro level, things like the SWIFT replacement SIPs and the digital yuan? These are obviously attempts to kind of circumvent the Western system. But do you think they actually add up to very much or are they just sort of headlines on a press release for the 20th party conference. I've never heard of a party conference, by the way, which wasn't regarded as important. But uh, maybe there have been a few. <laughs> this is a big one for Xi Jinping because he, he wants a coronation for life for it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think these things, they do enhance at the margin the use of the renminbi or the yuan. So the, the SIP system is basically, it's not quite a, a replacement for SWIFT because certainly for the time being, the SIP system uses SWIFT's messaging system. SWIFT isn't really a payment system. Yeah, you good to explain it, yeah. So SWIFT basically is a system for clearing transactions amongst 11,000 banks globally and ensuring that payments that are promised go through. 
TIPS is much more of a payment system itself, but it relies on SWIFT in order to carry the messages from one bank to another. So it doesn't get you anywhere then? Well, it, it's not going to get them very far. I mean, it's also much smaller, right? So there are 11,000 banks in SWIFT. There are probably about 1,100. A lot of them are Chinese, not only in uh, the SIP system. Over time, if the yuan was made more freely available and capital markets in China evolved to the point where trust was generated and people wanted to own Chinese assets and Chinese residents were allowed to export capital overseas. I mean, it could become a rival, I mean, in theory, but I don't think that all of the boxes are going to get checked, particularly about making the yuan available to foreigners. The digital yuan is also an interesting phenomenon. I mean, obviously, sometime from now, we will all be digital currency countries. But again, whether you have the world's most utilized trusted currency, I think it's about trust, not about technology. The technology is about the efficiency of the payment system and about what the central bank knows about who's doing the transaction, which, of course, in China's case, the People's Bank of China will know everything about people on both sides of the transaction which in in itself is perhaps kind of a disincentive to many people. (laughs) It's not a surprise to find that 80% of the $100 bills, 1.6 trillion of them, are held outside the US. And that's because people don't don't trust their own currencies or their own administrations. It always comes back to the kind of the central, the, the systemic flaw, as I described it earlier, which is about how you can build claims on China or another country, for example. There are only two ways of doing that. I don't think the digital currency is going to solve that problem, nor will SIPs. The other thing that obviously people think that this whole situation, the war and so forth, has given a great push to this idea that we are in a rapidly deglobalizing world and that security concerns are really driving economic planners to think about where can we get our oil from? How should we supply our energy needs and so on and so forth? Where do you think we're going? Do you think we're leading to a much less interconnected world? So there are at least a couple of angles to this. I mean, one is it's quite difficult to disentangle a globalization which has achieved levels of interdependence that we have. But it's not impossible because we saw after the 1870 to 1914 period, they said at the time, you know, nobody would go to war because too much to lose. Well, Norman Angel's great illusion, the very published in 1910. Absolutely. <laughs> Just in time. I don't think we should be blasé about it can't happen, because it can, because politics can trump sound economics, I mean, and does often. Having said that, China does have an interest in the world system as it is. It's not trying to revolutionize and turn the global system upside down. They like the World Trade Organization. They like the idea of working through institutions like the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank or the Asian Infrastructure Bank. What they want to do is they want to change the governance system according to which these institutions function to make it more sympathetic to China's or the the Communist Party's own governance system. So I'm sort of partially optimistic that some level of globalization will persist. And of course, we kind of like the idea of globalization anyway. But I'm also conscious of the fact that Russia's war in Ukraine 
is also triggering a decoupling impetus, which both the Chinese and the Americans will pursue. So the Chinese are quite desperate now to de-Americanize their supply chains. And similarly, the Americans want to de-Sinify their own supply chains. So I think there is quite a strong incentive on both sides to go against the grain of their economic interests but for political and national security reasons. So I think the next few years, I would say, you know, are going to be a tussle between preserving some element of globalization where it does work and where it's not threatening to either side. Lots of things, data management and transfer, innovation and research, technology, microchips, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I think we will see bifurcated separate systems evolve. So, George, as a a proponent of the dismal science, are you um, optimistic about the next couple of years or is it going to be very difficult? You know, we're always trained to look for things that go wrong rather than things that go right. So I think we should hope that things go right and that the kind of distancing between China's version of the world and our version of the world doesn't become too broad. I do think it's going to become more difficult. And I think that companies are going to be increasingly drawn into the crosshairs of regulation and law, where they have to decide awkwardly who's to follow and who's to flout. And I think a lot of companies with China businesses will probably now be giving, you know, kind of airtime precisely to this issue about what their future strategies should be and whether China is going to be any safer as a kind of a destination for business than Russia has been. I've just got two very quick questions. One is just on Xi Jinping. If he does get declared a god or whatever it is at the 20th Party Congress, what implications does that have for China's relationship with the world? And secondly, because we are in the finance business, we're a long time in finance, is China as a place to invest your money? Is it still an investable market or is it becoming a kind of bit of a swamp? <laughs> casino. Pariah. Casino. Yeah, casino is a swamp, about, yeah. cross between a swamp and a casino. <laughs> well, I think I assume that kind of dictators basically don't last forever, but maybe that's wrong. Stalin died a natural death and perhaps, you know, Xi Jinping can carry on for a long time. But I do think that if something were to happen or there were to be reservations in the echelons, higher echelons of the party that pushed back against Xi Jinping, yeah, I think political instability in China would be obviously damaging for China. And we'd have to be as concerned about that as we might be about China as it is today. As to is China investable? There was an issue before the Ukrainian war about whether China was investable. People were very mindful of the fact that under Xi Jinping, the governance system has changed quite dramatically. It's obviously there's in many ways there's been a sort of a leftward lurch in the governance system. In some important ways, private companies in China, which have been the engine of China's inevitable rise, are under the microscope now. It's not just the regulations which have been introduced in blizzard-like format in 2021 that are designed to contain financial platforms, data platforms, technology platforms, education, tutoring, for example, gig economy companies. I mean, all of these companies are now being told to align with the moral and social functions of the Communist Party of China. Corporate donations, quote unquote, 
which I think is just another form of forced corporate philanthropy. We call that tax, I think, don't we? Well, if, <laughs> if it were only tax, but basically these are, I mean, Alibaba and Tencent and ByteDance and Maituan and so on, they have pledged billions of dollars to party causes. So when we raise tax, we like to think that it's redistribution or it's somebody's heating bills or whatever may or may not be the case. But uh, this is a little bit different. What are the good causes they've been pledging? Presumably it's more than just a village hall in uh, Beijing or something, a new roof on the church. Yeah, causes which the party <laughs> approves of. So that's, uh, you know. So I do think that people have to be very careful about what they invest in. I mean, if you're an active investor and you can do your own research on Chinese companies, you obviously make a decision about whether you want to take the risk. If you invest in China through mutual funds or ETFs or something like that, you probably don't know a lot about where your money's going. And you're reliant on your fund manager or your asset manager to basically do all the donkey work for you and make sure that your money doesn't go into companies that may be next in line for regulatory overhaul. I think China is still investable, but I think you have to be very careful about where you put your money, which companies, and whether you can get it out. Yeah, getting it out is the important thing. Indeed. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton, and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. Join us again next week. <laughs>